ago in England, there was a little boy who spoke with a lisp. While he was growing up, he was not a brilliant scholar. There was nothing remarkable about him. When he grew up, he enlisted in the British Army, but the army rejected him, saying, we need men, suggesting that he was not a real man. After a few different careers, he decided to pursue politics. But when he got to the British Parliament in the House of Commons, he was widely unpopular among his colleagues. It is said that at one point, the entire House of Congress walked out when he got up to speak. He often spoke to empty chairs. His warnings and entreaties about a looming danger were ridiculed as an obsession. This man was Winston Churchill, who became Prime Minister of Great Britain and led his country to victory in World War II because he was a man who persevered, who refused to give up, but who persevered against all obstacles. One of the great doctrines of the scriptures is the perseverance of the saints. That all those who are genuinely converted will remain to the end. But the Baptist 1689 Confession of Faith, to which we subscribe, considers perseverance or the perseverance of the saints in much fuller detail. And it describes the perseverance of the saints thus. It is a lengthy quote, but you will permit me this morning to read it. Those whom God effectually called, sanctified by His Spirit, and granted the precious faith, can never totally nor finally fall from the state of grace. But they will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved. For God will never repent of having called them and made gifts to them. Consequently, he continues to beget and to nourish in them faith, repentance, love, joy, and hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that issues in immortality. Many storms and floods may arise and beat upon them, Yet they shall never be moved from the foundation and rock on which by faith they are firmly established. And even if unbelief and Satan's temptation cause them for a while to lose the sight and comfort of the light and love of God, yet the unchanging God remains their God, and he will certainly keep and save them by his power until they come to the enjoyment of their purchased possession." For they are engraven on the palms of his hands, and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. What the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith does is that while it agrees that believers will persevere, it nevertheless places the emphasis on the preservation of God. That is, believers persevere in the faith because God preserves them in the Christian life, in the Christian faith. And the Apostle Paul emphasizes this truth in Philippians chapter 1, and particularly 
in verse 6. The Apostle Paul, as you will recall, received a Macedonian call, a call to go over to Europe with the gospel. And Paul obeyed. He arrived in Philippi somewhere between 849 and 51. There we know the Lord opened the heart of Lydia. There Paul cast out an evil spirit that was in a slave girl. There he led the Philippian jailer and his family to the Lord. But 10 years after Paul's initial arrival in Philippi, he is imprisoned. And the church had sent Epaphroditus to him. And now Paul writes this letter, a letter in which he's thanking the Philippians for their support in the gospel and their material financial gift to him. He tells them about his affairs, his circumstances. And in this letter, he writes not only to thank them for their support in the gospel, but he also writes to encourage them to unity because there were two women, two leading women in the congregation, Euodia and Syntyche. In chapter 1, 27 to chapter 2, verse 5, he calls for unity because there were two women there who were feuding. He also wants to instruct them about justification. We are declared righteous by God apart from circumcision. And this he makes clear in chapter 3. But after the introductory greeting in chapter 1, and an opening prayer that runs to verse, from verse 3 to 11, Paul will then deal with this matter of continuing in service of the Lord. It is in this prayer, verses 3 to 11, that we see Paul dealing with this subject of perseverance, or the perseverance of the saints, the security of the saints. In verse 6, the apostle says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And it is this verse that I want to develop then in our hearing. I think that there are three realities that we are to see from this verse. First of all, we must consider the good work of salvation commenced. The good work of salvation commenced. The Apostle Paul thanks or gives thanks to the Lord for the recipients of this letter, the Philippians. I thank my God, he says, upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. Every time Paul thinks of these Philippians, he prays for them, and he prays for them with joy, and he makes requests to God on their behalf, and he does so because of their fellowship in the gospel. He says from the first day until now. He gives thanks for their fellowship in the gospel. And you will notice that these are genuine believers according to the Apostle Paul. In verse 9, he talks about them overflowing in love. I pray that your love may abound. These are genuine Christians. Not only do they fellowship with Paul in the preaching of the gospel, but they are people who are exhibiting love for one another. But the ultimate basis of his thanksgiving, it is because of God's grace in their life. He thanks God because he is convinced, being confident of this very thing, 
that he has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of a good work God has begun in them. And we're talking about the good work commenced. Well, what is this good work that God has begun in the Philippians? It is, in general terms, the good work of salvation. You know something of this. It is the good work begun in them, more particularly, by the Spirit. You see similar language from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, verse 3, where he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The good work that God has begun in them is the work that the Spirit of God began in them. And this work is the work of salvation, and in more specific terms, the work of regeneration. It is this work, this good work of regeneration, that the prophet Ezekiel foresaw in Ezekiel 36, in 26 and 27, where the Lord promised to give a new community. I'll give you a new heart, I'll give you, and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statue, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. It is this work, this good work of regeneration, a work produced in them by the Spirit, that Paul refers to in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The term here, regeneration, palingenesia, means again beginning or beginning again. Being born again, that's what it means, being, being, having a new birth. And this new birth, this new beginning, refers to the implantation of new spiritual life in one who is dead. Regeneration is to receive new life. It is to be quickened spiritually. Now Paul calls regeneration the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Because regeneration, new life, brings a change in one's disposition. That one's thinking and one's moral principles and moral conduct is changed when one receives new life. There is a reordering, a reshaping, a transformation, a cleansing. And so he calls it a washing of regeneration and renewing. And one article governs washing of regeneration and renewal. And thus, these are to be seen as the same thing. When a person is quickened from above and receives new life, that person is made a new creature in, internally in their thinking and behavior. And it refers to a moral and spiritual transformation. And so, Paul says, being confident of this, he who has begun a good work, the good work is the work of regeneration. And this is a necessary work because we were dead in sin and could not help ourselves. You know, Plutarch, the philosopher, tells, and I'm sorry to repeat this, but tells a story of 
a man who tried to get a dead man to stand up. And he did everything he could. Propped him up against a wall, but he eventually collapsed. Two men stood him up, but his legs collapsed beneath him. They put him to sit on a bench, but he fell over on his face. And the man observed, looked at him, and said, only philosophers can make this kind of observation. There was something missing on the inside. You and I, we had something missing on the inside. We lacked spiritual life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so God had to begin a new work, a new creation. And Paul calls this the new creation. He calls it a good work. He was begun a good work in you. You know, the, the question has been asked often, is something good because God wills it? Or is something good, therefore God wills it? And the question really is whether or not good exists independently of God. But we know that God is good. And so he is a source of all good. God has begun a good work. It is good because this work of regeneration comes from God. And everything that comes from God is good. Even the hardships that we face in life ultimately is designed by God for our good. And so he calls this work a good work because it finds its source in a good God. And secondly, it is a good work because it is pleasing to God. You only have to go back to Genesis chapter 1. Now, each day of the sixth day when God created... At the end of the day, when God looked on the work he had done, he said, this is good. And on the last day of creation, when he considered the creation of man and woman, and looked at all that he had made, God said, this is very good. And when God looks at the new work that he has started within us, this is also a very good work. God looks at what he has done in us, and it is pleasing to him, it glorifies him, it is good. But this work of salvation begun in us is a good work, not only because it finds its source in God, not only because God finds it pleasing and glorifying, it is good because it is beneficial. It is beneficial to us. That if we are to be saved, that if we are to be delivered from a Christless eternity, we need a new heart. We need to be changed. We need a new relationship with God. And this is what he has done. He has given us a new relationship by his spirit. He has changed us and made us new. Now Paul says he who has begun a good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So we see the good work commence, that is in terms of regeneration. But I want to suggest that this verse also teaches us the good work continued. What God commences, he continues. Paul has been confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I want to suggest to you that here we have a merism, a literary device where you have two opposing things referring to totality. And so you have morning and evening, night and day, heaven and earth. These are polar opposites. 
you have here beginning and end. God begun a good work in you. God will complete it. But the question is, what happens in the interim? What happens in the between? God begins salvation. God completes it. Well, does God have anything to do with the continuation of, of, of our salvation? But absolutely. Because this device, he who has begun a good work in you, will complete it, indicates, suggests that God also is in the middle, that God is the one keeping us saved. Paul, when he speaks of salvation, refers to salvation as a past event. You were saved. But he sees salvation as present. You are being saved. And future, you will be saved. And when Paul says that God who has begun a good work in you will complete it, he means God will complete it because he will continue it. He will sustain it. He sustains the work that he started. And how does God do that? How does God continue the work that he commenced? Well, he does so by guarding believers by his mighty power. In 1 Peter 1 verse 5, Peter writes of believers. He says that they are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And this verse comes in a context where, where Peter tells them that God has reserved an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled. God is keeping an inheritance for them. But now in this verse, we are told that God is keeping them for the inheritance. They are being kept. And the word, the verb to keep there is a term that is used of soldiers guarding a garrison. They are being kept closely by the power of God, ready to be revealed in the last times. How does God keep his people? He does so by his almighty power. Secondly, God continues the work not only by guarding believers by his almighty power, but by sealing them with his Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. What does God do? Well, God chose us in eternity. God redeemed us in Christ. God gave us an inheritance. But in our text, the writer also points out that God seals us. God protects us. A seal was used for identification and for protection. He says God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And there, he says that the Holy Spirit is a down payment, a guarantee. That's a loan word from the Hebrew Araban, which means a deposit, a down payment. You know what it is when, when you purchase furniture and you can't pay for it. You give your credit card and you put down a sum of money. And what you're telling Leon's or some other stories that 
there's more money to come. And so when we are converted, the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit who is our seal. He's a down payment. And God has given him to us. You see, the Spirit is the presence of God in us. And he is a down payment, a guarantee, an arabon that tells us that there is more of the Spirit to come. That even in this life, while we now experience the Spirit of God who works within us, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, still we have not entered into the fullness of the Spirit. But God has given to him as a, as a down payment that reminds us of the life to come. We are going to be fully in the Spirit. How does God continue the work in us? He gives us his Holy Spirit who seals us and who is within us as a deposit. A statement that there is more of him to come. But God works in a third way. And here Philippians is helpful because he works in believers to will and to do. So in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, after that magnificent section on the humility of Jesus, who though he was very God of very God, who indwelt eternity, was one with the Father, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself by becoming man, and not only became man, but became a servant. And still he humbled himself to the point of death upon the cross. And therefore God poured us as highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. And having brought this wonderful message of the condescension and the glorifying of Christ, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, or my, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in absence, in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. How does God continue our salvation? Well, Paul says we have to work at our salvation. It means to bring our salvation, to cultivate our salvation. Go on cultivating your salvation. That's what it means to work out your salvation. But he reminds us as we work out our salvation, as we live out our Christian life, the verb energio, God works, from which we get energy. The reason that we are able to cultivate our salvation, it is because God is working energetically in us. It is God who works in you, he says. That we are the theater of God's work. And God is working in us both to will and to do according to his pleasure. What, what Paul is saying then is that as we live our Christian lives, and as we seek to live it in obedience to Christ, it is God who is working in us, first of all, the will and the desire to please God. What, how does God keep us safe? He creates within us a desire for holiness, a desire for the things of Christ. And not only does he work within us to will, but to do. In other words, he energizes us, he gives us the power to accomplish the things that he commands. You see, God commands us to obedience, and his spirit produces the power to obey. That is why we say salvation from first to last belongs to God, because the, even the very energy that we use to respond to God, we receive it from God. It is not of us. 
How does God keep you safe? Well, he seals you with his Holy Spirit. He guards you with his almighty power. And he works in your heart to develop spiritual graces and desires. And to give you spiritual power so that you might last. And he does all of this for his good pleasure. My friends, I want us to consider the verse. And I want us to see, yes, the good work commenced. And the good work continued. And I'm arguing it's continued by God Almighty power working in us, sealing us, and guarding us. But finally, at least where the major argument is concerned, the, the thrust of the passage is on the good work completed. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. This is what the Apostle Paul says in verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So believers are saved. They are being sanctified. But we are not yet glorified. We have not yet been made perfect. But Paul says God will complete this work. That is, we will be perfected. We will be fully and finally saved, not only from the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin. And again, Paul is helpful later on in this epistle in chapter 3. 20 to 21, he, he describes this completion of the good work at the return of Christ. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, and the French translation is correct, the body of humiliation. He will change our Bodies of humiliation, the bodies that put us to shame, the bodies that are rebellious against the will of God, the bodies that tend to want to go in our own direction, that think and do evil, that restless body in which we now live. He will transform these bodies that bring us into shame. He will transform these bodies so that they are conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ. That the work begun will be completed when Christ returns. He will come in magnificent power and great glory and he will transform us so that we are like him. The great goal of salvation is that believers should be like Christ. God chose us in eternity that we should be like Christ. And when he comes, all of the taint and all the dross will, the dross will be burnt away and we will be like him. The good work he begins, he will complete. We will be delivered from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and the very presence of sin. And this is the language of Scripture. In Jude 1.24, we see this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forevermore. Amen.
But there's a question that has not been answered. And the question is, why is Paul so convinced? God, who has begun this work, will complete it. There was a man born in 1593 in England called John Goodwin. We must not confuse him with Thomas Goodwin. But he said in John Owen, in the preface to John Owen's work on perseverance, it's said that Goodwin was a man all by himself. He was against every man, and almost every man was against him. Now, Goodwin was a brilliant man, a brilliant scholar, and wrote powerful treatises. And one of them he wrote called Redemption Redeemed. And in this work by Goodwin, Goodwin argued that the Christian position, that those who are saved will persevere, he says this is an unbiblical doctrine. Because he argues that Christians are saying that we may live as ungodly as we wish, and yet we would never lose God's love, and eventually we will be saved. And John Owen, the Puritan, responded to this. First of all, he argues that Goodwin's view of the Christian life and of perseverance of the saints is a caricature, is a straw man. Because nowhere do we teach that we may continue to live in sin and we will still be saved. No, the doctrine of perseverance means that those who are Christians will persevere in love and in obedience to the Lord and they eventually will be saved. It doesn't mean, as many want to say today, one save, always save, meaning if you walk the altar, put your hand up, sign a piece of paper, made some outward confession of faith, then you can, be rest, you can rest assured that however you live, you'll still be saved. That's not the Christian position. You must persevere in holiness, but, but persevere in holiness you will if you are saved. Now, Owen argues, and he gives us five reasons why believers must persevere. First of all, he argues that believers will persevere because of the unchanging or unchangeable nature of God. Secondly, he argues that believers must persevere because of the unchangeable purpose of God. Third, believers must persevere because of the unchangeable covenant that God has ordained with his people and with the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth, believers must persevere because of the unchangeable promises that God has made to his people. And fifth, believers will persevere because of God's unchangeable oath. Now, I'm not going to develop these arguments. But I'm going to suggest to you that when the Apostle Paul is saying, being convinced of this very thing, that the Apostle Paul is convinced that believers who are saved will persevere to the end precisely because of the nature of God and the purpose of God. It's interesting to know that Paul uses this verb, being convinced, elsewhere. He uses it in the well-known and marvelous text of Romans 8, 38 to 39, where Paul says, for I am persuaded. But he could have used 
convinced. I am convinced. But he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God is unchanging in His nature, and God is unchanging in His love. I've said it often, and I will repeat it here again. When God loves once, He loves forever. This is not true of men. You see people pull up in cars and go into the greenhouse in Allen Garden. They get mad on Sunday, and it seems on Monday they are divorced. I understand it's a hyperbole, but you understand what I mean. People fall in love, and it seems as quickly as they fall in love, they fall out of it. And maybe the problem is because they're falling into things. Marry a nice, beautiful woman, but after time, age has its effect. People get older, grow double chin, and all kinds of things that we don't necessarily like. We lose altitude up top, those of us who are men. We grow paunches that we are not very happy with. And so people are very quick to trade us in for new models. When we love today, it's not forever. But unlike us, God loves forever. I have loved you with an everlasting love, he says. And because God is unchanging in his nature, that is unchanging in his love, we can be very sure that having begun to love us in the past, he will continue today and even to the end of our lives. You see, God is unchanging in his nature, not only in his love, but in terms of his faithfulness. Notice, again, this word, I am convinced or confident occurs in 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul says, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded. There it is. I am absolutely convinced that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He's, he's unchanging in his power. His power does not change. So my, our Lord Jesus could say, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and I give them eternal life and they shall follow me and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. John 10, 27 to 29. You see, God's power preserves us and his power is unchanging. He does not, he does not get older. When you see the vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, his hair is white like wool. It's not because of age. It's because of wisdom. It's a sign of wisdom. God does not lose power over time. He's still the omnipotent God. Creation did not exhaust him. And preserving us cannot exhaust him. You see, God is unchanging in his faithfulness. I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you sons of men are not consumed. Scripture reminds us of the faithfulness of God to us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. You see, God will preserve us because he cannot change in his nature. He still remains the loving God. He still remains the faithful God. He still remains the all-powerful God. But God cannot change in his purpose. God who chose us in eternity for salvation. There is no being in the universe who can change the plan or the mind of God. It is he who says, my counsel shall stand and I shall do all that I please. He does all things according to the counsel of his own will. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 says of this, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we sleep or whether we wake, we shall live together with him. It was not in the purpose of God to appoint us to wrath. He appointed us to life in Jesus, and God's purposes can never change. How do you know? Why is Paul so convinced? Because he knows God. He knows God is unchanging in his nature. But I want to suggest a second reason. I could give you a a few more, but let me give you one more reason. The reason Paul is convinced is not only because he knows the nature of God, but because he understands the efficacy, the power of the work of Christ. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our redemption. He died for our sins. He bled for us. He paid for our sins. What we have argued from this pulpit is that salvation must not be seen as a general provision for the whole world. Salvation is a payment to God for our sins. That he gave to the Father a real and genuine payment for our sins. He redeemed us. He bought us by his blood. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the Apostle Paul says. And it is precisely because Jesus has paid for our sins. It is because he suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. It is because he offered one sacrifice for sins, that forever we have been delivered because Christ paid. And he paid the whole price. He paid all that there was to be paid for our sins. And God will never demand payment, two payments for sin. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to cover all our sins, those in the past and those today, and those that will be committed in the future, how unfortunate they may be. Moreover, we have been placed in a union with Christ, joined to him by the Spirit. It's an unbroken union. Thirdly, we have Jesus Christ in heaven, who is our surety, our guarantee. He is the guarantor of our salvation. You remember when we were in Hebrews, seeing that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a high priest who stands in heaven. In fact, he has been given the scroll of human destiny. And he is the one who is working through God's purposes for our lives. Why are we saved? We are saved because God does not change. We are saved because Christ has paid and paid it all. 
My dear friends, if you are to persevere to the end, let us be very clear that you can't persevere unless you commence in the Christian race. God must first do his good work in you. It was William James, the American philosopher and pragmatist, who says that we don't need a radical work in us. He says a little bit of education and personal reformation of our lives will do. But that is his view, God's view. And I take God's view any day over man's view. God's view is that if we are to be delivered, a mere reformation will not help. A mere smattering of education will not do. We need a radical work. We need a work of the Spirit of God to give us a new heart, to make us new people. We call it being born again, born from above, born supernaturally. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have been passed away. If you are to persevere in the faith, you need to be born again. And you must therefore stop the dithering. Stop wasting of time. Don't engage in mere half measures. God wants not part of you, but all of you. My son, give me your heart. And how do you, how do you receive this new life? Well, you do only what God has commanded you to believe. You turn to Jesus Christ. You rest upon him. You come to him like a beggar with nothing in your hands, but simply to the cross I cling. You tell the Lord as it is, Lord, I have failed. Lord, I have sinned. And I can't do it on my own. And if you come to God with no pretense, in genuine humility, if you receive his son who died for sinners, you will be saved. But you must come. It is not merely going to church and trying to be good. You must have a relationship with God and that comes from above. There are many professing people today who are in hell. Why? Because they never had a real stuff. They did not have that which comes from the Spirit of God. Have you turned to Christ? Have you ever gone on your knees? Have you said to him, Lord, I cannot save myself? But you can. Will you not save me? And have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior? You see, only then by embracing him will you know that God has done a new work in you. And if you have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, given yourself over to him to live for him and to follow him, then you can be confident that your salvation is secure because God always finishes what he starts. You know, history records some very expensive white elephants. You know, we're talking about white elephants. We're talking about projects, expensive projects that have people have begun and had to abandon. We think of a project in Guangdong province in China. The world's largest mall is a white elephant because it was never completed or occupied the way it should. We think of the, an airport in Spain, Don Quixote Airport that was supposed to be the model of airports, but that also became a white elephant. And there are white elephants, projects, for example, with the U.S. military, 
planes to be built and tanks to be built started off very well, but after a while they found the concepts were flawed and they are now white elephants after billions of dollars have been sold, have been used and spent. But with God, there are no white elephants. There is no project that he begins that he does not complete. You see, God does not lack wisdom in planning. He does not lack power in execution. That God has within himself, the self-contained God, the independent God. He has all the resources that you need. And he will complete the work that he begins. He will complete the good work that he started despite your imperfections and mine. In the summer we see construction on the road and we see roads that we ordinarily take have been reduced to sometimes one lane or even closed as construction workers are at work. And sometimes you will see a sign that says, caution, men at work. And you need to know that there are two signs that hangs over the life of a believer. There's a sign that says, under new management. You're not your own. You belong to the Lord. But secondly, under construction, caution, God at work. And even though you may not always be able to gauge the work of God, God is working in you to produce what is good and pleasing to him. You're still under construction. And that period may last for 50, 60, even 90 years, but when the Lord is ready, it will be complete, and you will be like Christ. What God begins, he never fails. And you need to know that despite your imperfection, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a master craftsman, will keep chiseling away, will keep pressuring and molding and shaping you until you are in his image. What he begins, he completes. He will complete his work despite your imperfections. He will finish his work despite the challenges and troubles that you face. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. The pressures and the hardships of life will not be allowed to discourage us and turn us away from God. Because even in those trials, he may not deliver you from them, but he shall deliver you through them. The good work he begun, he will complete. You will continue, and God will finish the good work he begins in you despite the entrenched ungodliness and apostasy around. When you look around, you see great evil. You see immorality in society, which is increasing on a daily basis. Our children are corrupted and perverted in school. We see indifference by the population to spiritual things. We find even outright hostility to spiritual things. And the question that we may ask ourselves is, can we stand? Can our children exist and continue in this wicked environment in which we live? You need to know 
But it is not you who saved yourself. It is not you who keep yourself. It is God. And He will keep you even in a hostile and ungodly environment. That while the society becomes more radicalized and more ungodly, the work of grace in your heart is stronger. That he who is with you is, is greater than he who is against you. And I thank God that, that this salvation is not a man-made product. It's not a self-engineered product. This is a, a product which comes from God. Salvation is a work from God. And there is no being in this universe who can compare to God. Now you may say to me that there are people who have begun the race and have failed. We think of biblical characters, men like Judas and Demas and Alexander, men like these who once professed faith and they were lost. I want to just tell you that there is a kind of duck that looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks even like a duck, but is not a duck. You see, there are those who look and speak like Christians. But they're not genuine. Their faith is artificial. They're temporary Christians who fall away because the real root of the matter is not in them. John says, they went out from us. If they were, from, if they were of us, they would have remained with us. It is those who persevere to the end that will be saved. But all God's people will persevere Despite apostasy, Jesus could say to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith should not be eclipsed. The hymn writer is right. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his fold. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no never, no never forsake. You see, perseverance is a gift of grace. Faith is a gift and perseverance is a gift of God. But I would be remiss in, in concluding without saying this. That if you are to persevere, you are to trust in Christ. You persevere by daily believing and resting upon Christ. You persevere by using the means of grace, by reading the scriptures, by praying to the Lord, by gathering regularly for worship to hear the preached word and to respond to God in singing and prayer. You continue to use the means of grace. You, you continue the things that you already begun. The psalmist David says, the Lord, he didn't say himself, he says, the Lord will perfect that which, which concerns me. The Lord will bring to completion that which concerns me. My dear friends, let me tell you this in closing. Your, your salvation is in the best hands. It's in the hand of Jesus Christ. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ. May God grant you great energy and great joy in serving him knowing that your salvation is secure with God in Christ. And you say this for his sake.